Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation virtually. My name is Tori Smith, trade economist at the Heritage Foundation, and I am so pleased to be your host today. Before we get to the great discussion with our experts about trade freedom challenges, I wanted to touch on a few housekeeping notes for you. As you already know, you are in listen-only mode, and this webinar is being recorded, and it will be available on heritage.org within 48 hours. Now, at the end of the program, we'll have ample time for question and answer with our wonderful guests, but please do not feel obligated to wait to submit your questions until then. You can submit any questions that you might have for the panelists at any time through the questions box in the toolbar on the right side of your screen. Please include your name and affiliation with your question and keep your question to a question, just like we do in person. Finally, we'll be beginning the program with a quick trade poll because every economist loves data. The question is, which barriers to free trade should countries focus on eliminating? While this is not an exhaustive list by any means, the options are tariffs, digital taxes, trade distorting subsidies, and export controls. Please make sure to submit your answers now. And we'll be touching on many of these during our discussion with our great panelists coming up. It's a hard choice, but make sure you pick one. Thank you all so much for participating in the poll. We'll show the results towards the end of the webinar. And now I would like to invite my panelists to join us on screen. Hello. Thank you guys so much. So our program today, Trade Freedom Challenges, Digital Trade and the World Trade Organization, highlight two exceptional chapters from the Heritage Foundation's annual Index of Economic Freedom. The 2020 index featured a special focus section on trade, where we brought in several authors to give their take on the top issues that we face in trade policy today. Now, our first speaker today will be Gabriella Beaumont-Smith, Gabby is a policy analyst in macroeconomics in the Center for Data Analysis here at the Heritage Foundation. She writes about trade policy and the intersection of trade and agricultural policy. Beaumont Smith is expanding her research into the digital privacy and intellectual property rights space as trade modernizes. As a member of the team in the Center for Data Analysis, Beaumont Smith is responsible for analyzing trade data and economic models. 
Before joining the Heritage Foundation, Beaumont Smith was a master's fellow at the Mercatus Center, where she did extensive research on a proposal for a US-UK free trade agreement. Beaumont Smith holds a master's degree in economics from George Mason University and a bachelor's degree in economics from the University of Connecticut. She is originally from the United Kingdom, but currently resides in Washington, DC. Our second panelist will be Simon Lester. Simon is Associate Director of the Cato's Herbert A. Stifel Center for Trade Policy Studies. His research focuses on WTO disputes, regional trade agreements, disguised protectionism, and the history of international trade law. Before joining the Cato Institute, Simon worked for the trade law practice of a DC law firm and as a legal affairs officer at the Appellate Body Secretary of the World Trade Organization. In 2001, he founded the international trade law website, worldtradelaw.net. He has written a number of law journal articles which have appeared in such publications as the Stanford Journal of International Law, the George Washington International Law Review, and the Journal of World Trade. In addition, Simon has taught courses on international trade law at American University's Washington College of Law and the University of Michigan Law School. Simon has his JD from Harvard Law School. Thank you guys so much for uh, hopping on um, and showing everyone your faces. Now, before we get to our panelists, and I'll ask them to turn off their cameras for a moment, um, I would like to share a few key points with you about the value of economic freedom as measured by our index for more than 25 years, as well as why we should specifically care about advancing trade freedom. Now, since 1995, the Heritage Foundation has measured economic freedom. Today, our index has four pillars, rule of law, government size, regulatory efficiency, and open markets. Each pillar is made of three indicators for 12 in total. The index measures these indicators for more than 180 economies around the world. Unsurprisingly, 25 plus years of the index provides us with the ability to see not only how economies perform each year, but how their scores change over time. Moreover, we're able to see how economic freedom correlates with other measures of well-being. Because that is what economic freedom is all about, improving human well-being around the world. Now, in our next slide, you'll see on the far left the trend of worldwide economic freedom over time. Spoiler, it's increased. Over the same period of time, world GDP has more than doubled and poverty has plummeted. These measures side by side show us not only the monetary benefits for individuals of advancing economic freedom, but the real impact that a freer economy can have on the livelihood and well-being of individuals around the world. You can learn more about the index of economic freedom by visiting heritage.org forward slash index forward slash, and the link is below as well. Now, let's take a closer look at trade freedom in our next slide. The topic of our discussion today. The open markets pillar of our index includes trade freedom, investment freedom, and financial freedom. These three components together measure the ability of individuals around the world to exchange goods, services, and capital free from government intervention, as well as the accessibility of, and efficiency of former formal financial systems. Now, trade freedom is measured through each country's average applied tariff rate, or the cost of importing for individuals in each country. We also apply a penalty for non-tariff barriers, so things like subsidies. 
For example, the U.S. average applied tariff rate in the 2019 index was 2.6%, up from 1.7% in the previous year, and today that rate is actually higher. This means that on average, Americans pay 2.6% more than the basic market price for goods that they import from the world. Now that might not seem like a lot, but when Americans import $2.5 trillion worth of products each year, 2.6% turns into a big bill. Now turning to our last slide, trade freedom is not just about tariff rates. Trade freedom correlates very strongly with higher incomes, greater food security, greater political stability, and the one that surprised me the most when I first joined the Heritage Foundation was healthier environments. So not only are we focusing on increasing incomes for people, we're focusing on advancing trade freedom to increase overall well-being and prosperity. Well, now that we know the nuts and bolts of economic freedom and trade freedom, I would like to ask Gabriella Beaumont-Smith to join me back on screen to speak about digital trade. Good morning. Thank you everybody for joining us. I'm going to tell you about digital trade. So what is digital trade? Digital trade is broader than e-commerce. E-commerce is the buying and selling of goods and services over the internet. Digital trade encompasses this, but it also includes data flows that facilitate global supply chains, services that power smart manufacturing, and other digital platforms and applications. Digitally processed transactions can be digitally delivered or physically delivered. So for example, a transaction that would be digitally processed but physically delivered would be buying a book on Amazon and it literally being delivered to your door. An example of a digitally processed transaction that is digitally delivered would be subscribing to a webinar and then watching it online. Underlying all of these transactions are data flows. Now, traditionally in digital trade, we think of data flows as flowing across borders, but in actual fact, the majority of data flows occur within a single country. As you'll see in the chart, cross-border data flows are increasing rapidly. It was projected that by this year, global e-commerce directly from the business to the consumer would reach $4.1 trillion, and 29% of that would be cross-border. That's double the amount that was seen in 2014. It's actually even possible that because of this pandemic, these percentages will be higher than the projections. You'll notice that many of these years are projections, including years past, because collecting data on these flows is extremely difficult. So, Data is essentially information. This makes it vital for businesses and vital for economic freedom. For example, the manufacturing sector has seen enormous gains because of digital trade. The sector creates more data at every stage of the supply chain than any other sector in the US economy. Businesses rely on data from research and development, from their factory operations, from services to evaluate productivity and efficiency. Metal companies, such as steel makers, use data to analyze the physical properties of their raw materials and constraints of production plants, 
so that they can find ways to improve efficiency and reduce energy consumption. Trading data between businesses and consumers also makes the production process more efficient. Having this data and being able to trade it between business to business and business to consumer organizes the important information that businesses need to make investment decisions. For example, customer responses to products. Businesses use these to look at purchasing trends and then that can inform their investment decisions. They may see that they need to improve a product or discontinue a product or increase production. This helps businesses meet their customers' demands more effectively. However, as with all paths, there are roadblocks. And in the names of security, privacy and law enforcement, some governments are trying to erect barriers to digital freedom. While these areas should most definitely be part of the conversation, more often than not, they're being used as masks for protectionism so that dominance can be ceded to domestic firms. As we are a little short on time today, I'm only going to discuss restrictions on cross-border data flows. However, I would encourage you to look at this year's Index of Economic Freedom and check out my chapter where I go into more detail on other types of restrictions on digital trade. So the most extreme example of cross-border restrictions on cross-border data flows is known as data localization. Data localization is a type of regulation that requires a business operating in a territory to store the data it collects in that territory in a computing facility in the same territory. Less extreme regulations simply limit the movement of data across borders. However, this is all problematic. Policymakers continue to defend these restrictions on cross-border data flows in the names of cybersecurity and privacy. And as I said, these are important issues that should be a part of the conversation, but they should not be used for protectionism. As you can imagine, with the borderless nature of the internet, physical location is highly unlikely to protect data. By having these restrictions, firms are imposed with unnecessary costs. They need this data in order to uh, carry out their day-to-day -day activities. Imagine if you have a factory in one country and they need to get data about logistical information for transportation for their warehouse in another country. If they cannot make that communication, that is immediately going to be problematic. Local data centers then fracture the ability to compete. The internet has given businesses of all sizes an easier and more efficient way to break into the international market. Data localization and restrictions on cross-border data flows threaten this progress. Requiring businesses to store data in a specific territory burdens them with additional costs. In particular, small and medium-sized businesses are harmed because they won't be able to afford the necessary infrastructure in the territories with these regulations. They also won't be able to afford exorbitant fines if they are found to be out of compliance, or they may not be able to afford to hire the data compliance officers that they will need to make sure that they are in compliance with these complex regulations. 
this then seems protectionist because by forcing out this competition, dominance will be ceded to domestic firms. This reduces trade freedom in the digital sector and will stunt growth, harming consumers who benefit from the varieties of goods and services that competitive industry provides. Digitalization is facilitating the speed at which the global economy is integrating, providing businesses with better resources and in turn, consumers with better products. However, the borderlessness of the digital economy has brought about new waves of policy issues. Important matters, as I've mentioned, including security, privacy, and law enforcement should be considered, but digital protectionism is not the solution. Digitalization enhances the benefits of trade. The freedom to trade has increased living standards around the world and pulled millions out of poverty, as Tori just illustrated. So as with trade freedom, it is vital that we protect digital freedom. Thank you very much. And I look forward to your questions at the end. Thank you so much for your fantastic remarks, Gabriella. Now, as a reminder, you can submit questions to the panelists throughout the presentation through the questions box in the toolbar on the right side of your screen. Just please remember to include your name and affiliation with your question and keep your question to a question. Now, I'd like to turn to Simon Lester and ask him to um, come up to the screen with me and speak about world trade organization and reform efforts. Thank you very much, uh, Tori. Uh, thank you to Heritage, uh, both Heritage, both for inviting me to contribute a, a chapter to your great index of economic freedom and uh, to also to participate in this webinar. This is actually a, a very good day to be talking about the World Trade Organization. It was just yesterday that Senator Josh Hawley published a, an op-ed in the New York Times calling for the abolition of the World Trade Organization. And uh, for those of you who are, who are on Twitter, you probably saw uh, some exciting, heated discussions of that issue. Um, so what I'm going to do is talk uh, briefly about the, the history of the WTO, the problems with the WTO, and uh, the future of the WTO. So not to get too bogged down in the history, uh, but just briefly, for most of, of, of U.S. trade policy history, uh, Congress was, was in charge. Congress was setting tariffs. Um, this culminated in uh, the, the famous 1930 Smoot-Hawley tariffs. It's a different Hawley than Senator Josh Hawley, uh, 1930, um, and it transitioned us uh, to a new approach to trade policy making. Uh, basically, um, under the FDR administration, Secretary of State Cordell Hull, who's a passionate free trader, engineered a shift of uh, control over tariffs to some extent from Congress to the executive branch. The executive branch would now go out and negotiate trade agreements um, with, with, our, with uh, other countries under which both countries would agree to reduce their tariffs. And that model is pretty much what we still have today. It's expanded in a number of different ways, but we, we, this, this idea of trade agreements as mutually agreed constraints on protectionism through, through uh, reductions of tariffs and, and uh, restrictions on uh, tax and regulatory protectionism, that's the, the model that we have today. Um, in the, the 1930s, these trade agreements were negotiated on a bilateral basis. And after World War II, they were negotiated multilaterally through something called the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. 
The GATT uh, uh, lasted for, for several decades, and there were a number of negotiating rounds where, where tariffs were continually lowered. And then uh, from 1986 to 1993, we had a big negotiating round called the Uruguay Round, where um, a new organization was created, the World Trade Organization. So you had the GATT that was subsumed into the WTO. And the WTO expanded on the GATT in, in several key ways. Uh, first of all, it added in new substantive areas, uh, intellectual property and traded services, which the GATT hadn't covered. Second, it unified uh, the, what had become a fragmented system. Uh, the GATT en encompassed several diff different agreements and there were different bodies monitoring them. The WTO unified everything to, to one central place. And in addition, the WTO strengthened the dispute settlement system. Under the GATT, if, uh, if another government brought a, a complaint against you, uh, you know, against your government, um, the government complained against, if it lost, could say, well, we don't accept that decision. They could block that decision from having effect. And under the WTO, it became almost impossible for, for losing governments to block a decision in that way. So the dispute settlement system uh, became more effective, um, certainly not as strong as the domestic judicial system, but, but more effective than things had been under the GATT. And so, so after the Uruguay round, the creation of the WTO, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of talk about continued expansion of the WTO. Let's deal with investment. Let's deal with competition policy. Uh, but all of that, uh, that excitement quickly dissipated. Um, there was a, a big WTO conference in Seattle in 1999. Some of you have seen movies about this, where uh, protesters clashed with the police, called the battle in Seattle. Um, that, that, killed a, that killed a lot of the enthusiasm. Uh, it briefly came back um, after the September 11th terrorist attacks. Uh, governments you know, felt more, more unified, came together, and they launched a new uh, negotiating round. But, but not much has come out of it. Um, there have been a, a few areas of progress at, at the WTO uh, over the years, um, but, but, but not too much. Instead, trade negotiating, trade negotiating has shifted to the bilateral and regional uh, uh, levels. And mostly what we talk about trade negotiations these days is these FTAs, free, free trade agreements, um, you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership or uh, US-Japan trade agreement, um, and the WTO has been sidelined. So, so what's the problem with the WTO? Um, well, why is it struggling to liberalize? And I'm gonna focus on, on three issues here. One is uh, the, the stalled negotiations themselves. Uh, another is the status of certain countries as developing countries. And then the third is uh, blockages in the, in the dispute settlement system. And the, the last two are issues that President Trump and the, the, um, the Trump administration ha have really focused on and, and been very critical of the WTO about. Now, in terms of the, the, the stalled negotiations themselves, I have an answer which I'm sure is an oversimplification. And if you brought in a you know an actual trade negotiator, they might you know, sort of go through the nuances a bit more. But but my my view is that a, the biggest reason we don't see trade liberalization to the WTO is that the major countries don't want to liberalize. Um, so uh, uh, first of all, we have uh, large developing countries like India, China, and Brazil, and as they, as those countries have been brought into the system and played a bigger role, uh, they they they've demonstrated that they are re reluctant to liberalize and they have held up uh, a lot of the negotiations um, that, that others have, have tried to push forward. In addition, though, uh, major you know, trading, major wealthy trading uh, countries uh, like the, the United States and Japan, the European Union, have all been reluctant to liberalize as well. 
basically what I see happening is that each government would like to liberalize in the areas where it's already open and its trading partners are closed, but none of them wants to liberalize in their own sensitive areas. And as long as that's the case, and nobody's willing to liberalize their own sensitive areas, I just, I don't see much hope for, for progress uh, at the WTO. Free trade agreements are, are more appealing because there are fewer parties to deal with. Um, it's just, it's easier to get to a deal and you still get to hold a, a press conference announcing the, the major achievements. So politically, free trade agreements are much easier. The WTO is difficult with, with so many countries with so many different interests. Uh, as part of this problem, related to this, is this issue of developing country status. There, there's some big countries like India, Brazil, and China that I mentioned earlier who claim status as developing countries. They say, we're, we're not that wealthy yet. Yes, we've, we've industrialized a bit, but we're still much poorer uh, on a per capita basis than, say, the United States, Japan, or the European Union. And, and they use that as, as the justification for, for not liberalizing more. Now, I tend to think that, that developing country status is, is not a, a big deal in this area as, as, some others do, as some other people do. And the US and European Union, who are clearly not developing countries and don't claim that status, have resisted liberalization of agriculture subsidies and other sets of areas. But nevertheless, the, the rhetoric around that issue uh, of developing country status, I think, has gotten in the way of liberalization to some extent. And so let me at this point just plug a, a paper that some colleagues of mine at Cato have just written, uh, Jim Backus and Emu Monik, uh, trying to bring order to this issue of who gets to claim developing country status and, and if they do, what, uh, you know, what, what, what does that say about the commitments that they've undertaken? The final issue that I want to talk about at the WTO is dispute settlement. Um, this is, is a hot topic. President Trump will often claim that the, the United States loses all the cases at the WTO and the judges aren't fair to us. Uh, I, I, there are different ways to measure that. Um, I've done measurements, some other people have, and I think that everyone has, has concluded that that's not actually true and that the United States does just as well or better than other countries in, in WTO dispute settlement. There are certainly cases that we have lost, um, but there are many others that we have won. I mean, you look at the, the, the whole picture of it, um, you know, I think the United States does just fine here. However, um, the Trump administration does disagree with that. And one of the things that they've done is blocked appointments to uh, the appellate body of the WTO. So if you remember the introduction, I, I worked at the appellate body secretary of the WTO, so sort of assisting the, the appellate body judges. Um, and so on, under the GATT, you had only a lower level panel to hear cases at the WTO. You have the, the panel and the appellate body. The United States, the Trump administration has blocked appointments to the appellate body, so there is no appellate body uh, there right now, and that leaves us in a position where nobody's sure how WTO dispute settlement will actually work. Some other countries are proposing alternatives, uh, alternative appeal mechanisms. Um, the United States is not engaged in it, so there's a lot of uncertainty as to whether the, the rules can actually be enforced. Okay, so that's some problems with the WTO. Let me just talk very briefly in the maybe minute or two I have remaining about the, the future of the WTO. Uh, as I said, Senator Hawley called for abolishing it. You know, other, others have uh, you know, criticized it as being sort of obsolete, not dealing with um, the, you know, the current, current issues in trade. Um, what can be done here? Well, recently uh, somebody asked me to contribute a chapter to a book on sort of a, a utopian uh, approach to what the WTO uh, should look like. If there were no WTO, what would we create instead? And so I'm going to I'm going to mention three things I, I, I said in this regard. And 
The first, I, I, I guess you can take as, as somewhat, uh, somewhat as a negative, um, is, is that I don't have much hope for liberalization of the WTO for the reasons that I stated earlier, unless we, we see a new Cordell come along, somebody who is passionate about free trade and who will push for it. Um, sort of a, a, a counterpart, the opposite of perhaps some people in, in the, the Trump administration who are uh, very anti-trade, very protectionist, um, but, but certainly passionate and, and willing to push their issue. We need sort of the, the counterexample of that. We need a Cordell Hall to come along and, and make the case for free trade and, and bring people along, um, or, or else I don't think we'll get much more liberalization at the WTO anytime soon. Um, uh, something I would really like to see at, at the, at the, in the trading system in general is to move away from uh, these bilateral and free regional free trade agreements. We call them free trade agreements, but they're actually discriminatory trade, preferential trade. If we're giving lower tariffs to one country than to another, um, I, I, that's not actually free. Free would be everybody gets the, 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 the same tariff, same low tariff level. Um, Free trade agreements have tended to focus on issues other than uh, traditional trade liberalization, and that's been a problem. One area where I think there, there's great potential is the one that, that Gabby was talking about in digital trade. And I, I think that it, with digital trade, we are kind of at the, 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 the point where we were with the GATT when it was first created in 1947. We have all these nice rules on paper. We have these good digital trade rules in, say, the U.S.-Japan trade agreement or the, the renegotiated NAFTA. But we don't know what they mean yet, and so I think we we we've laid the foundation for some good digital trade liberalization. But it, but it could take um, years or decades to figure out exactly how they apply to the data localization requirements that Gabby was talking about earlier. So so I think I, I've reached my time limit here. I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up, but I'm I'm happy to take uh, any questions that that people have about any of the things I, I said or things that I didn't say. So th thank you very much. Simon, thank you so much. And Gabby, thank you as well. I would just ask our uh, panelists to both come up uh, to the screen. Um, and before we get to your guys' very insightful questions, which are already coming in, um, I want to see those results of the poll. All right, so we have a lot of people who uh, said subsidies. Um, I completely agree. You know. Uh, as Simon was uh, mentioning with the with the WTO, a lot of countries still have subsidies in place that um, were allowed to be kept in place, um, even uh, even with the Uruguay round tariffs as well. Absolutely, um, you know. Generally speaking, though, the the average tariff rates around the world are relatively low, um, especially for developed countries like the U.S. or European countries. Um, and only a few of you said digital taxes. Um, I would love uh, during the Q&A section to maybe dig into that digital tax issue a little bit more because we see a lot of new ideas for digital taxes um, and, and those can be very, very damaging. So thank you all so much for participating in the poll. I hope it was a little fun for you. All right, so as a reminder, and we have a few questions, but please just remember that you can submit your questions for the panelists through the questions box in the toolbar on the right side of your screen. Um, and many of you have already done this, but please make sure to include your name and affiliation with your question um, and keep your question to a question. All right, with that, um, I, I'm going I'm to take moderator prerogative for this first question. Um, and I'll ask my panelists to keep, try and keep their answers pretty brief so we can get to as many questions as possible. But on this topic of digital taxes, um, 
we see a lot of new digital tax ideas um, coming from around the world. Um, the OECD is um, hosting some talks about how to deal with digital taxes. Um, Gabby, can you speak a little bit more about, you know, what is what are these digital taxes that are being put in place or being talked about? What effect might they have on, say, the big, um, you know, big tech companies like Google, Amazon, um, and companies like that? And maybe what would be a better way um, to address maybe the questions that some countries are expressing about why they want to tax these uh, these big companies? Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, taxation is traditionally based on physical location, but with the internet, physical location is ambiguous. So policymakers have decided that physical location is no longer an appropriate standard when it comes to these um, tech companies. But actually, physical location is really important for tax purposes because local governments are much more equipped with the cultural knowledge to estimate the impact of the tax on, um, on you know, on their tax base. So destination-based taxes allow distant politicians to then involve themselves in local affairs. And we believe that this is threatening individual liberty and reducing economic freedom. Um, digital taxes are being floated by a few different countries and, and being floated in a couple of different ways. Uh, the most common is to impose a tax based on worldwide revenues. Um, this is economically inefficient because a company that makes no revenue in a territory may still have to take pa uh, pay tax to a government of that territory, which doesn't make any sense. Um, and with many taxes, the incidence of the tax is likely to fall onto the consumer. So if you take Google, for example, if Google is taxed a digital service tax, then they're likely to pass it on to the company who is paying Google for the advertising space. Any small business or medium-sized business that is impacted by this may not be able to afford that increased price that is only as a result of the um, of the tax. So it's unnecessarily distortive and will, at the end of the day, harm the consumers of, of the advertising um, and will harm consumers who benefit from seeing those advertisements and other types of services. Wonderful. Simon, do you want to add anything to that? Let me just add a quick personal note here. I, I don't know the policy that well. I read the headlines. On a personal note, you mentioned that, that I run a website called worldtradelaw.net, and that's true. Um, fortunately or, un, or unfortunately, we're not Google. Um, we're much smaller than that. Uh, but we sell uh, a digital service to, to you know, customers in countries around the world. And over the years, I've had to you know, monitor what is each country's tax policy and you know how does it apply to me? Am I going to have to start paying taxes in countries? I mean, it's just my, my wife and I, and we're doing it from home. Uh, we have no contact with the rest of the world except you know, we, we sell to them. And as far as I've been able to tell so far, we're not subject to anybody else's taxes. You know, each, each, we, we, I mean, we, we fall within de minimis limits generally, or it's, it's a service, um, so it's not covered. 
but it's something that I have to monitor. So as, as a business person, you have to be aware of what everyone's, uh, what every government around the world is doing. And that, that's, that's a big hassle. That's time consuming. It, you end up having to pay money. Um, you know, have to you understand all these regulations. So it's definitely something that gets in the way of, of business. Um, it, it just hinder it, it, it's, it makes it more difficult uh, for, for you to set up a business. And, and that's a bad thing. You know, we, we should tax and regulate in a way that makes it as easy as possible uh, for, for companies who have a, a good or service they want to sell to get it out there. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're not a trade wonk like us, you might not even think about um, right. what sort of policy like that may impact your business. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to shift gears a little bit um, to a question from Hannah Monachin. And I apologize, Hannah, if I mispronounced your name. Um, but she asks, will the fact that more people are working from home and relying on the internet around the world be a catalyst or a motivator for WTO e-commerce talks? I think it's a slight motivator for, for e-commerce talks in general at the WTO and, and elsewhere. I mean, clearly there are gonna be, there are services that were sort of being pushed into that were traditionally in-person. So for example, uh, you know, medicine, or education, and these are things I, I wrote about, you know, a few years ago. I guess I, maybe I, I was a little too early on it, uh, but we're, we're sort of we're, we're seeing the growth of, of sectors like that, and, and so you would think that uh, it would be useful for trade negotiators to come up with rules to sort of to govern this in, in a way that that, that uh, facilitates the flow of, of those services. The problem at the WTO is, uh, as I was you know, talking about, you've got 164 countries, and you've got some some big players with very different views on this. Um, so the United States and the European Union uh, themselves don't agree on, on a lot of these things, but you know you can imagine that they can bridge the differences. But then you bring in China with its famous great firewall and, and sort of shielding its citizens from uh, information from, from, from the rest of the world. How do you get a, a WTO digital trade agreement uh, that, that, that it has both China and the United States and the European Union and all these other countries with, with all their different interests, um, as motivated as, as governments might be, and I hope they are, and I think they are, I'm not sure how to bridge those gaps. I, I, I'm a little skeptical that we'll see much progress. Um, so I, that, those are my thoughts on it. I don't know if, if, if Gabby has you know, thought about that specifically wants to add anything. Yeah, I mean, I would just bring up the um, the moratorium on customs duties on electronic transmissions. Um, this is something that is is basically an agreement with WTO members that electronic transmissions are not subject to customs duties. That includes things like digital music, video games, movies, software, emails, etc. Um, and the agreement has been in place since 1998 and has been consistently renewed every two years, I think we would all like to see that um, be made permanent. It's not something that is currently permanent and, and we think it should be um, because tariffs should not be put on these digitizable goods. Um, a lot of developing countries are against the moratorium because they are claiming that they will see revenue losses and it is true that they will experience higher revenue losses because they tend to uh, levy higher tariffs on these goods, even though they import fewer of these goods. Um, but the, um, the loss is still extremely small. 
the upper bounds average between 0.08 and 0.23% of revenue loss. So it's minuscule. Um, so I think we would absolutely uh, want to see that the moratorium becomes permanent. Yes, and that's perfect. You guys transitioned great into what was going to be my next question from Jacob Mantle um, from Borden Ladner uh, in Toronto, but we uh, we covered that. So we'll move on um, to our next question, which is, um, we've had it come from a couple of different folks, but uh, the one I'm gonna use is from Brian Riley from the National Taxpayers Union. Thank you for joining. Um, so we wanted to hear what your thoughts were on this idea of bringing supply chains home um, by America, wanting to have medical goods produced here in the United States um, and those sorts of issues, um, especially during the, during the pandemic. Um, and maybe just this idea of more generally of bringing jobs, bringing factories back to the US. Um, can you both speak to that a bit? Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll start off. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, we're hearing a lot of talk about uh, how globalization has failed and you know, where the United States is being cut off from supplies and therefore we need to, to make it all here. And my response is that sounds pretty risky to me. Um, if you're looking for uh, a, a safe, secure supply of goods, you want to have actually a pretty high degree uh, of globalization and economic integration. And so, so to give you an example, to illustrate that, you know, I'm reading reports about uh, pork and beef processing facilities uh, being, being shut down here in the United States. And I confess, I've, I've gone to the store and stocked up a bit on some ground beef and put it in the freezer. I, I mean, I don't know what kind of food shortages we're going to have, hopefully none. Um, but if we do, uh, it would be really nice if we could get some uh, from our trading partners. Um, I, I think that if you are looking to, to have a secure supply of all the, the food and the medical goods you need, you want to have trading relationships with, with other countries so that if some disaster of, 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 disaster of some sort happens in your countries, you're not cut off. Now, there is a real issue, I think, of over-dependence over on particular countries, um, or, or especially countries we may be having a, a geopolitical rivalry with, whether or not we should, you know, we are. And obviously that, that country is China. And if you can show me that 95% of our penicillin is made in China and it, it, it's risky, um, you know, China might cut us off, then that's something I, I would want to think about. Like, how do we diversify that? Let's not have it all made in China. There's been some debate about the, the, the numbers, though. How dependent are we on medicines from China? And I think that that is worth identifying what the facts are there. What are the real numbers? Are there specific products uh, where we're over-dependent on, on, on China? I'm definitely open to having that conversation, trying to figure out, well, how do we get a diverse supply? I think bringing it all back home uh, will be costly and risky, and that's not the right answer. But if it's a question of a diverse supply from countries around the world, uh, from trusted allies, yeah, no, absolutely. We, we, should, we, should, we should think about that. Um, yeah, so, but first, we need to figure out where exactly we stand. I think there are assumptions about how dependent we are, and they're not actually backed up by facts. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Simon, I'll add in a little bit here. Uh, so the Heritage Foundation, um, myself with my colleague, um, Ed Hazelmeyer, another colleague, Maya 
Clark um, authored a report a couple of weeks ago about this issue of uh, medical supply chains. Um, and it's true that we find that some individual um, products or maybe active ingredients um, maybe come from China in a larger volume, but overall, I think it's only about 13% of our pharmaceutical products actually come from China. They come from many other countries as well, and then a lot of it's created here in the United States. And you rightly point out that there are going to be supply challenges or shocks that could occur no matter where the production is taking place. I mean, take this pandemic, for example, who thought that a, the, a large majority of the US economy would be shut down for several weeks? Um, if, if that can happen here in the United States, uh, we're not going to be able to shield ourselves from a supply shock by bringing everything here. So it's really important to have diver those diverse supply chains. The last thing I'll add is that the CARES Act that Congress passed actually required the FDA to collect more information about where active ingredients are sourced from for a lot of pharmaceutical goods. So that will give us more data um, because we know where the finished goods come from when they're importing to the United States, or we know where things are are coming from when they're imported into the US, but we don't necessarily know if we import a finished good, maybe where all the active ingredients come from and that sort of thing. So Congress um, asked for some more data collection on that. So in the coming months and years, we'll be able to have more information to do a better look. Um, but I think we would encourage not to be hasty in the, in the making of new policy, because when we are hasty in making new policy without all the facts, it can lead to those sorts of externalities that could result in higher drug prices or, or other issues that are not great for consumers. Okay, uh, Gabby, do you have anything to add there? No, I think you guys covered it all. <laughs> Perfect, okay, let's switch to something that I think both of you will be able to weigh in on. Um, US-UK trade negotiations officially began yesterday. Um, this is a question from Philip Thompson at um, ATR. Should we expect more or fewer trade barriers from a potential US-UK agreement? The golden question. <laughs> um, you know, I, I am not sure, to be honest. I would hope that we would see fewer regulations. The UK tends to align with the US more. Um, on things including digital trade, pharmaceuticals, investment. Um, but at the same time, the UK has come out floating a digital tax, uh, which I was very surprised to see. It's been postponed currently. Um, it will be extremely similar to the, the French digital services tax that the French have imposed. Um, so I'm really not sure. The EU is going to remain an important market for the UK. Um, and the UK has come out and said that they want full access to the US agricultural market, but they won't reciprocate. Um, agriculture is always a contentious issue when it comes to trade negotiations. Uh, but I would hope that the UK will be more willing to reduce some of those regulations uh, that they have, you know, been bogged down with as being a member of the European Union. But I, I think we have to wait and see. 
That that may sound like a, a strange question. You know, obviously, a trade negotiation is going to lead to lower uh, trade barriers. Uh, but but given the experience uh, we have with the Trump administration renegotiating U.S. Korea trade agreement, renegotiating NAFTA, and seeing barriers often raised, it is a reasonable question to ask. You know, what are people expecting out of this U.S.-U.K. trade negotiation? What I would say is, if we do get a deal, it is likely to be modestly trade liberalizing. My prediction, and you know, we'll, we'll learn more over the coming weeks, but my prediction is that in the coming months, the US and UK might find a couple specific sectors um, where they can do some liberalization. So you know, famously, the US bans haggis imports. That's, that's Scottish, uh, I forget what it is. Most people think it's gross. I did try it once, I thought it was fine. Uh, so you, you could see how the U.S. and, and, the, and the U.K. Uh, make agreements on specific products or services outside the context of a broad trade, law, trade liberalizing agreement. That's something that can be done pretty quickly. A comprehensive FTA with all of its lowering of tariffs and all the other substantive chapters that, that would be in it, it seems to me that's going to take a little while. I mean, you, you can rush things through, uh, but we're already at May. We've got a uh, presidential election coming up. It's just hard for me to see this getting done before then. Um, so I, I think this is something that the, the broader US-UK trade negotiation, especially because, because the, the UK negotiation with the EU is also crucial and that's going on at the same time. The broader comprehensive US-UK FDA is something that's going to be dealt with by the next administration, um, whoever is in charge of it. That, that's my prediction. But like I said, the next couple of weeks, I think, will be interesting. What kind of reports are we getting? I mean, these things can happen quickly if an administration wants them to happen quickly. It can be done. Um, but we, I don't think we know at this point what, this, what the Trump administration wants here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Well, that reaches us to the end of our time today. Um, I'm sorry that we weren't able to get to everyone's questions, but I appreciate you all being here and being engaged um, and joining us. Like I said, this uh, this program is recorded and will be posted on heritage.org within 48 hours. Um, again, you can also reach um, any information about the Index of Economic Freedom at heritage.org forward slash index forward slash. And the last thing I'll add is that you can follow our experts here on Twitter and connect with them and maybe ask any questions that you maybe weren't able to get answered. Um, so you can follow Simon at SN Lester on Twitter. You can follow Gabby at at Gab about trade. And you can follow me at the Tory K Smith um, to stay apprised on everything we're writing about trade um, and, and to connect with us in the future. So thank you so much. Um, we appreciate you being here and we hope you all have a wonderful Wednesday. Thank you.